Hi, this is Steve Blumenthal, founder, CEO, and chief investment officer at CMG. Thank you for joining the call today. Joining us on the call is John Malden, John's best-selling author. He is the chief economist and co-portfolio manager uh, here at CMG as well. Um, most of you, I'm sure, are very familiar with John and his Thoughts from the Frontline blog. If you're not reading it, strongly recommend you Google Thoughts from the Frontline, John Molden. Also joining us on the call is Darren Heitman. Darren is founder of Azaris Capital Management. It's a Philadelphia-based value equity manager. The three of us are here to have a discussion with Ben Hunt. Ben is a chief investment, investment officer at Second Foundation Partners, a consultant for large institutional investors and the author of Epsilon Theory. It's a newsletter and website that examines markets, history, and nature. His clients are professional investors and asset allocators across 200 countries. Ben has managed a billion-dollar hedge fund and served as chief strategist for a $13 billion asset manager. He is a PhD from Harvard University, and he's co-founded three technology companies. Ben spends a lot of his time on his family farm in Connecticut, which inspires a number of his ideas. And, and uh, Ben, I, I know you enjoy raising sheep. Thanks for joining the call. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the sheep. Well, it's great to be here, Steve. Thank, thank, thanks for having us. Yeah, I, I mean, look, my, my grandfather was a real farmer. He had a dairy farm in you know, North Alabama in the, you know, the 1920s. I, I mean, he would, he would have a big belly laugh at, me describing myself as a farmer, right? I, I'm, a, I'm a dilettante farmer. You know, the animals are, are pets, really, you know. But that said, I do like the animals that pay the rent. So I, I like the chickens. I like the sheep. I like the bees. Uh, they're, they're, they're my favorites in, in that economic respect. Uh, but, you know, sheep are a, true, sheep a true economist. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Well, we're here today to talk about uh, the coronavirus and to um, to pick your brain. Uh, you, uh, if, if your blog is fantastic, uh, I love you. the wit and the humor, uh, and it really causes us to think in uh, a different way. Um, talk to us a little bit about just give give us your general thoughts about what's going on with the coronavirus. Sure, sure. Well, look, uh, my focus or my curiosity really was peaked a little over a month ago uh, when somebody pointed me to a, a statistical analysis that was taking place, you know, in the, in the, in the depths of, 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 a, of a Reddit channel uh, that was looking at the reported numbers that were coming out of China on how many people were sick, how many people were dying. And so that, well, I'll take a look. My, my my academic career was in statistical analysis. I mean, it was, it was applied to political science, not to economics. But the, the, the backbone of this was the same econometric toolkit. I mean, I wrote a book using this, these techniques, and so I, I feel like, shoot, I, I kind of know something about this stuff. And so I, I went and was looking at this guy's statistical analysis of what was coming out of China, expecting to think, oh, God, you know, this is nonsense what this guy's writing. Uh, but it wasn't. Uh, what, what this anonymous writer was, was showing was that the growth of announced cases, the growth of the deaths, announced deaths that were coming out of China, 
followed, and I, and I won't get into all, into all the weeds here, followed what's called a quadratic equation, a quadratic formula, as opposed to an exponential formula. And, and the reason that's really interesting is that, or, or <laughs> troubling, let's say, is that a quadratic approach, which is a, a, a much um, not as steep of a slope, it doesn't go up and as, as quickly and as fast as an exponential function. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not how diseases work, right? That the, all diseases spread through a, a, an exponential function, right? And, and what's also true in the real world is that what exponential functions look like tends to be very messy, right? Because they, in, in the real world, the way you see an exponential function is it'll be nothing, nothing, nothing. You really can't tell it's there. And then you'll see, be spiky, right? You'll see a cluster here and a cluster there. And then all of a sudden, boom. And, and that, that's what an exponential function looks like. That's what we're seeing today in South Korea. That's what we're seeing today in Italy. I'm sure that's what, you know, Iran is experiencing. Today. That wasn't the data that we're getting out of China. Right? So I was looking at this and saying, look, I, I, I worked on it a long time. I said, look, there's just no way. I can't, I can't come up with any exponential function for any disease that would occur in the real world and put on top of that some, you know, quarantine and treatment protocols and the like to get this data. It's, it's too smooth, it's too perfect. And on the other hand, I can come up with a very simple formula for uh, showing, you know, progress in the war against the coronavirus that fits the data just, just perfectly. So I, I, I wrote a note saying, look, I. I don't know what the real numbers are in China. I suspect they're much higher. But what I can actually, <laughs> I think, prove to you is that the numbers we are getting, it's, it's a crock. The numbers we're getting are a crock. And then I wrote another piece to say, well, the, the reason this is really important, uh, it's because these numbers that are being reported as gospel are being parroted, are being uh, repeated as if they are, you know, truth with a capital T, by organizations like the World Health Organization. And so I, I point out how on, on, on February 4th, the World Health Organization and its big executive board meeting in, in Geneva, again, just copied the Chinese, they towed the literal party line uh, of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party to say, no, 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 you don't need to be restricting flights. And no, 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 there, we, it'd be counterproductive to start, uh, you know, refusing to issue visas to, to people with a Chinese passport that comes from Hubei province. You know, stuff that's just nonsense. And what's really damning about this is that we know that the senior leadership at the World Health Organization knew that what they were saying was false. They knew that the data they were providing, just copying, cutting and pasting the Chinese data, was wrong. And, and, and I know they knew it was wrong because World Health Organization scientists, independent scientists based in Hong Kong, had published a paper in The Lancet, which is a, a British journal for uh, medical publications, showing that, in fact, 
the Chinese numbers that were being reported were an absolute crock. And, and as a result, wow. what, what I, I really think has happened is that this supposed effort at containment, it's failed, right? It, it, it's failed because the, the, the true metrics of this virus, of this disease, are not what would be described by these Chinese numbers that are being presented as truth with a capital T. It's the numbers we're seeing out of South Korea. It's the numbers we're seeing uh, you know, out of Italy. It's the numbers that are spreading, frankly, to every country in the world, including the United States, that lead me to, 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 to very much believe that, that containment has failed. Now, that doesn't mean that, that we've lost the war. It, what it means, though, and I feel so strongly about this, is that we have to prepare now. We have to, we have to fight. It's not going to be enough to say, oh, we're going to contain it over in China or, or, or even over in Asia. No, we're, we're all going to be dealing with a disease which has an incredibly high um, rate of basic infection. Uh, and, and we have to take steps both as individuals but more importantly, as, as, as nations, to fight. What, what, what does that mean? What that means is we have to prepare our healthcare systems. Uh, you, you know, what, what happened in Wuhan, the city of 9 million people that collapsed in China, that, that, that China walled off from the rest of the world, and then many other cities in China following on to, to, to uh, Wuhan. What happened in Wuhan was that the doctors and the nurses themselves got sick. Over 30% of the, the healthcare professionals in the city of Wuhan contracted the disease themselves. And once that happened, uh, once hospitals became a place of infection rather than a place of healing, uh, the Chinese government made the decision to, to isolate the city, to, to, to put everyone you know, under house arrest to wall off the city and, you know, effectively just let the disease burn itself out. That's what they've done. And we can do so much better, right? That, that, what, that, what the Chinese did in Wuhan is a failure, not a success. It's, it, it's a failure borne out by the, the I think, the, the failings of that government to take care of their own citizens. And what I mean by that is building the treatment wards now for this sort of disease, uh, providing the necessary protective gear for healthcare personnel, distributing the treatment protocols, the testing protocols in sufficient quantities we can start using them. And most importantly, most importantly, it's changing our policy from a remain calm, all is well, it's all contained and everything is fine, to being honest with everyone to say, it's not all going to be fine, right? It's not, it is not the zombie apocalypse, but we've got to deal with it. We, we got to deal with it. We, we're not going to get out of this without, without a scratch, without getting our hair mussed, as, as my grandfather would have said. And, and that, what that really means is we have to support our local healthcare systems. If we can keep the hospitals from 
being overwhelmed by patients, which could absolutely happen given the virulence of this disease. That's when things become you know, really bad. We can get through this if and only if we work together to support our hospital systems and prepare now. That, that's the message I'm trying to get out. We can talk about how this roils through markets and, and politics, frankly, but, but, but that's the core message that I'm, that I'm, that I'm trying to describe. Um, yeah, I think I want to go, I do think I want to go there. Uh, we want to go there. Uh, before we do, uh, John, talk a little bit about the phone call you had the other day with the uh, bio um, uh, medical team in Philadelphia. Thank you, Steve. Uh, ben, it's always good to talk with you. Uh, just for those who aren't listening, Ben and I have been longtime friends, and I'm a monster fan of his writing. You really should get his letter. Um, the and I'm, I'm um, trying to describe the Wistar Institute. It's the oldest uh, medical uh, institute uh, founded in the literally uh, in, in almost very immediate post-revolutionary times. Uh, it's actually the center for uh, uh, vaccines and immunology, and immunotherapy in, in, in the world. Um, and out of that has come several companies, and one of them is Inovio and Joseph Kim, who was um, a PhD student there and, and now, you know, uh, has a, they, uh, they're on top of this. Uh, uh, they have a vaccine that will be in human trials late uh, uh, spring, maybe early summer. Uh, there's another company that's announcing a trial in, you know, uh, early spring. Or a human trial. So, I mean, these it, it, the ability for the medical uh, research world to respond is leap years of, uh, uh, ahead of where we were during the SARS epidemic and so forth. Um, I mean, Joseph was talking about being able to have a million vaccines ready for human use by the end of the year. So, um, it is, with that being said, um, he says that viruses don't know borders and that uh, he would echo everything Ben said, that we've got to prepare um, and, and do what we can to make sure that it doesn't get in. When it's in, it gets isolated. Um, but we can't think that it's not going to get here. We can't pretend that it's going to stop at the border because of the the nature of this virus is you don't know who's sick. Right. Um, and, and it may, I mean, you can test them. They show no symptoms. Uh, they show no uh, uh, infection. And then uh, 10, 12, 15 days later, uh, they get sick. Uh, so it's, it's a, um, um, a very contagious virus. And I'm going to say this, and it may sound odd. I frankly think we're lucky uh, that this isn't the, uh, and let's just use that word, zombie virus. Uh -huh. this, is, this is a really pretty bad virus, but it's not the zombie virus. And it is going to test our ability to deal with it. 
but I, we, we've made such progress in the last 10, 12 years that I think we will be able to deal with it, at least in the developed world, but it's going to get us a lot more ready for when the zombie virus does show up sometime in the future. Um, and um, this is a, this is a good um, um, you know, test. Dress rehearsal, yeah. And, well, John, let me, if I, if you I don't mean, mind, it, jump it, in it, there. It's going to challenge us. I, I, I don't think that there's any question. And I'm hoping you're seeing some of the senators in their hearings taking a very aggressive, proactive, yep. Yep. in your face stance with the administration. Uh, they're passing bills to put money into it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm hoping some of that is for local clinics and preparedness. So, John, let me, let me just say, I, I am also, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this comes across well enough in my writing, I'm, I'm optimistic, right? I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that this is both a wake-up call. I'm optimistic that this is the sort of thing that transcends party lines. Uh, it's the sort of thing that transcends um, wealth and uh, wealth inequality. It's, uh, it's the sort of thing that I, I really do believe can bring us together if we allow it. And, and what I mean by I allowing like it is, you know, like you, I'm, I'm so optimistic about the science aspect, of this, right? What you're describing about the, the advances that are made in the, you know, vaccine uh, technology and, and, and all the ramifications of this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, being the statistical person that you are, have you looked at any of the data that's coming out of Italy and Iran and uh, Korea? Yeah. And and, uh, and then think in terms of uh, uh, a uh, 1.2 billion, billion person plus population in, in China and, and say, what, what, what do you think it really looks like or Sure. Here's, here's what I yeah. think is coming down the pike. And, 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 you know, you shared your observations, John, from the, uh, the, the, the health center you saw in, in Philly. You know, I'll, I'll share uh, some information I got from, you know, a person at the, uh, the Gates Foundation yesterday. You know, in terms of timing, you know, what they're thinking is that for the U.S., it's a, it's a, it's a mid to late summer I'll say uh, peak as far as when, you know, it's, it's, it's most squirrely here in the U.S. I, I actually think it could be a little bit sooner than that, uh, you know, by my analysis of, of how the disease is propagating, uh, particularly within Europe. Uh, so it's, it, it's going to be everywhere. Uh, it's in, in, including the United States. Uh, and it really is that uh, I'll say that Italian outbreak that has me not most concerned because it's going to get here from, from any of these outbreaks we have today, uh, South Korea, even Iran, but, but certainly the Italian outbreak. Uh, it's going to get here. It, what, what it seems like is that in terms of its, uh, that it's massively infectious, perhaps, as John was saying, not massively fatal or, or, or zombifying. So it, what it seems as if is that 80%, let's say, of the people who contract the virus, uh, it's, it's, like a, it's, it's like catching the flu. 
right? It's, it's, a, it's a nasty couple of weeks, but for 80% of people, you're all good. 20% of people got to go to the hospital. Typically, when you go to the hospital, that's ICU units. I guess that's redundant. Uh, intensive care units, ICUs. Uh, a lot of those ICUs are needing ventilators. Uh, we don't have enough in this country. This is a part of what I'm talking about. This is what needs to be built now. Uh, those intensive care units, those isolation wards, uh, the, the, the ventilators, pre-stocking the, uh, the antiviral uh, medicines right, that, that, are, that are showing some efficacy. At the end of the day, a lot of this is going to depend on how old you are and whether you're a man or a woman, right? So uh, it, in, in terms of, you know, it, are, are you looking at dying? Right? So I'm, I'm 55 years old. Uh, I don't have a pre-existing condition, either respiratory, uh, cardiology uh, problem. Uh, you know, I wish I were 20 pounds lighter and, you know, I... <laughs> don't we all is okay don't we all right but i gotta tell you guys i i i think i've probably if i catch this disease i've probably got a one percent chance of dying which is uh you know some of the people say oh that's that's not so bad i i gotta tell you that's utterly unacceptable to me right? <laughs> I, I mean and that that percentage goes up pretty sharply the older you get so Look, this, this is not the zombie apocalypse. I agree, I'm, I'm very optimistic about the science here. I, I'm very optimistic about, uh, John, even the, as you were saying, even the politics of this, about it transcending party, transcending everything to uh, support our healthcare systems, keep the doctors and nurses healthy, and, it, and we'll come out on it. But we won't come out of this without a scratch. And, and for those of us of a certain age and a certain gender, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be a little tougher than, than, than for others. So women aren't as impacted by it no. as men? Correct. Well, wow, that's great. And I also saw that younger people are really very little issue. Yeah, look, I mean, if you look at the flu, the seasonal flu, probably, well, not probably, less than 10 basis points, less than one-tenth of 1%. Of the people who contract the seasonal flu, uh, die, and uh, that—that's probably the right percentage if you are a, you know, a, a young, healthy female. Right? It, 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 males are going to be a little bit higher, but again, the the real thing it seems is age and pre-existing conditions. That—that's what drives your the, the the mortality rate, you know, significantly higher. One last thing so, that really drives it higher is if the healthcare system fails. So that, that's why to these, these numbers we're talking about here, that's provided that we maintain our healthcare system and we keep the doctors and the nurses themselves healthy. Well, good, let's switch gears. Economics. Um, by, sure. by the way, let me just go on to say that there's, it, there now appears to be a significant number, we don't know by definition, of people that get the virus and it is a minor annoyance and it never gets reported 
right. they just drink fluids, rest for a couple of days, and, and uh, go on about their, their world. And that is, that by definition doesn't get reported because it's, it's not, uh, uh, they it's don't even know about it. It's not really symptomatic. So it's it, it, it right. a different problem. Very true. Let's let's switch to economics. Um, ben, your thoughts around the impact? Well, look, there, there there are obviously going to be enormous supply disruptions in yeah every everything you can name off you can you can think of. And typically, and this is true, supply disruptions can, you know, jack up prices. You can have these supply shocks and so prices go up. The major impact though here is clearly deflationary, right? This, this is a deflationary shock of enormous magnitude uh, from reduced travel, people staying home, people not working. Uh, yeah, we're gonna be, Today, South Korea shut down all their schools. Hmm. And it, who, knows, who knows when all those schools will go back, will, will open up. I think it'll be a long time. And, you know, think about that for, for a, a, a family, uh, both parents work, kids go off to school, now somebody's got to stay home with the kids. Uh, it's the, the, the repercussions of this, the rolling impact of what this means for, you know, to get into the nitty gritty of consumer spending and, and behaviors, that's what's so, um, e it's an enormous deflationary shock, like I say, but the, the real problem is that we really have no idea how deep of a shock it will be. It, it really wouldn't surprise me if we had no global growth this year. It's, 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 it's that big of an impact. Wow. In the markets? Well, I, I mean, you're, you're, you're seeing what's happening in the market. I, I will tell you, this reminds me so much of when I was running my hedge fund in 2008, uh, because we were, we, were, we were early on what was happening, the systemic issue that was at hand there. And every time the market would poke its head up a little bit, that was just an opportunity for me to, to, to short some more. Right? It, it's, it's the reverse of the, here I'm just describing what it feels like to me. Right? It, it's the opposite of what it's felt like over the last 10 years when it's, you know, to coin that phrase, you know, buy the effing dip, right? That, that's, that's been the, the market the last 10 years that whenever you had a dip in the market, well, that was, you know, you want to buy. This is the reverse of that. Whenever the market pokes its head up, I, I think you've got to see this as a selling opportunity until, if and until, we know how badly it's going to impact behavior, consumer behavior, work behavior, political behavior here in the United States. Right now, we have no idea. All we know is going to, it's, it's coming. I think it's going to be pretty nasty. I think pretty much all of us eventually catch it. I think it's 1918 all over in terms of the propagation of the, the spread. Exactly. And, you know, 
how is that going to impact people other than saying, oh, it's going to be deflationary? I don't know. But it's not the sort of thing that, oh, cutting interest rates down to zero is going to, 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 to change, right? I, you know, whether I'm staying home, not being able to go to work because I've got to stay with my kids, doesn't really matter, right, whether mortgage rates are a little bit cheaper. That's not going to impact my behavior. So it's the sort of thing where our toolkit for the last 10 years, central bank intervention becomes much less uh, useful. And it's the sort of thing where the, the downside here is, is in terms of behavior and the, the deflationary aspect of this is, is anybody's guess right now. And in that environment, like I say, I see everything as a selling opportunity, not a buying opportunity. Boy, I agree with that. That's great advice. Steve, this John? is Darren. I, I uh, Darren? appreciate Thank you for inviting me to, to uh, be on this call and, and uh, give me the opportunity to ask questions of all three of you, because I've been a long-time reader and fan and learned a lot from uh, reading your, your newsletters over the last several years. Um, but if I could start, Ben, China's recently downgraded their, their uh, assessment of the risk in several provinces. Uh, what do you think of that? Is that premature? Do you think that's just going to create more, more problems? So I think yes. I, I think I think that China has an excellent healthcare system. I think a lot of people in the West don't realize that, but that the the Chinese healthcare system, they've invested enormously in it, and it's it's quite good. So I I believe that that healthcare system, combined with the extraordinary quarantine measures, essentially putting you know, well more than 100 million people under house arrest and walling off, for all practical purposes, entire cities to let the disease burn itself out. And by burn itself out, I mean kill people. Uh, I have no doubt that directionally speaking, they are getting a handle, quote unquote, on the disease. What I also believe very strongly is that the reported numbers are a fraction of the actual numbers. What I also believe very strongly is that we can do so much better for our citizens here in the United States and all over the world than China did for their citizens. Um, you know, it's, you would think that'd kind of be a low bar, but, 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 but what I see more and more is people saying, oh, that's what we need to do. We need to do what the Chinese did and you know, Wuhan and Hubei province. And my reaction to that is <laughs> no effing way, right? That, that's a, what we don't need to do. So look, China's, China's going to China, right? And, and, and that, that authoritarian dictatorship they have over there is going to do that authoritarian dictatorship thing. And that's what they've done. So I think the numbers, I do think they probably have a handle on the on the disease, but um, you know, I, again, I don't trust the numbers, and I also don't trust the numbers to indicate to us how we should handle the disease ourselves over here. Right. Hey, you got to break some eggs. 
Yeah, right. <laughs> so, uh, so would you, um, if it was only a Chinese issue and it hadn't escaped their borders, would you believe that the supply chain could get back to normal, say, in a couple of months? And we could have. Yeah. Okay, so it's still nowhere near peak impact, even within China. No, it's I I I I really don't believe it is. I I, I think that they are desperate to maintain that sort of of economic activity. Um, but this is this is not something that just goes away, right? This 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 is something that we are all going to be living with frankly, you know, for, for, for the rest of our lives. Um, right. It, you know, this is... Well, I mean, just, um, there's doctors saying, let me, let me jump in, there's doctors yeah. saying that, uh, you know, this time next year, we'll be talking about, as, as flu season comes in, you know, you need to go get your flu virus and your COVID-19 uh, Correct. flu shot. Correct. And, and it's just going to become part of the fabric. And... Um, the the other part of it is the supply chains will get rebuilt. They will pick back up. That's what businesses do. Correct. Uh, this this has been a shock. I mean, we saw Y two K coming. Everybody got prepared and fixed it. Uh, the if Y two K had been an overnight, oh my God, then that would have that would have been a problem. Yep. Uh, but it wasn't. We had plenty of time. Now we've got a problem, so they'll fix it. That's what humans do. But the supply chain in uh, twenty twenty and in, in twenty twenty two, January twenty twenty two, will not look like the supply chain of January twenty twenty. Completely agree. Completely agree, John. And 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 in different, and and there are different. I'll say dimensions to that. Right. There's the real company saying we need a more flexible supply chain. There's that. The other dimension to this is though, I'll say just purely from a national security point of view, right? The United States can't allow, frankly, a supply chain for our pharmaceuticals that is so dependent on, on China, right? Or, or any country. And, and this is also, I think, part of that wake up call that you're describing, John. It, it's, it's not just for what we have to do for preparing our healthcare systems for what will continue to come down the pike, because this, this, this ain't the last, you know, new disease, novel virus that's going to hit us. But, but I, I think the other way that's a wake-up call, John, is to, to understand how much of what we as the citizens of the United States require for our safety and our health and our stability, we don't make anymore. So I, I think there are a couple of, I hope, very positive developments that come out of this. Um, you know, moving a lot of this important or critical uh, supply, manufacturing and the like back, back to the United States. Which ultimately has to be inflationary at some point. Oh, 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 Steve, I, I think the, the response from government to all of this, and, and I thought this before coronavirus hit, we're going to see fiscal spending into the real economy 
in the United States, in Europe, in Japan, in China, like we've never seen before. Right? It's going right. to make the kind of the infrastructure, whatever it was, $800 billion that was spent in 2009, it's going to make that seem like a, you know, an amuse-bouche at a fancy restaurant, right? It, it, the main course is coming. Moving us into an investment regime that we haven't seen or anything close to it uh, since the 70s. Right on, brother. Right well, on. I mean, that, but that's a, yeah. that's a, it's a different type of environment, Steve, than the 70s versus what we're going to see. I mean, it, it, frankly, we're coming off, as, as, as Ben points out, a massively deflationary world. Mm -hmm. And just as Japan absorbed 100% of its GDP in stimulus, not, I mean, from, from just debt buying, yep. central bank, uh, mm -hmm. uh, not to mention another 100% another of uh, central of, of government injection. And they've got so no none, of, none of that headwinds yeah. out of the way. And, and but it, what... It, it, <laughs> But but so, what this I think Ben, what you're saying is, and it'll, and and John, comment on this right after I say this, is that uh, ultimately at some point, um, you know, there's it requires some degree of shock uh, to get authorities uh, in the room uh, with agreement uh, to lead to where I think we're going to be going, which is monetizing the debt. Um, a, a, a debt jubilee of some sort, and and but, but that but that is years down the road. Yeah, yeah. Until then, it's a deflationary uh, battle. The deflationary side of the battle keeps winning, and, well, I, and it's not even clear that it's honest to God, goodness, Steve. I, I think we have to be careful of assuming that uh, enormous quantitative easing taking care of the debt is going to ipso facto be uh, inflationary. It might be, mm -hmm. but the Japan has taught us, Europe has certainly taught us that there's rules operating the world that don't make sense anymore. And we just have to be aware of that. Um, said. So, uh, I mean, just you can't make assumptions. You know, John, I, I used to be a, I called it a, a weak form narrativist, meaning that you now politicians and you know the guys on CNBC, you could you could you could come up with a story and a narrative, and you could make it stick for a little while, but pretty quickly the rules of reality, right, would set in. And, and over the last 10 years, I've gone from being this weak form narrativist to being a strong form narrativist, to, to thinking that, you know, unless there is a story, unless there is an inflation story, for example, it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist in reality. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I agree so much with what you're saying that, that the the rule, our behaviors have, have changed and our, our, the ground that we used to 
feel as steady beneath our feet, the grounding of reality. If something happens, then this is the reaction in the real world. I don't think any of us feel that anymore. And it's been replaced by whatever story is constructed you know, by the bankers and the politicians and the like. So I, 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 I know exactly. I don't even know if it's, it, I, ben, I don't even know that it's been replaced by the story. I think the underlying tectonic plates mm -hmm. are so shifting in a global um, uh, interconnected, which we're finding out now, but, but in a uh, financialized world, we've never been this financialized. And Correct. It, it, to expect that we can go back and read our classical um, economist or our Von Mises or even Keynes and expect, ah, this dial turns this reaction. Yep. I'm, I've lost confidence in my ability to predict which dial moves what. So, you know, John, we, we, we've, for forever, for as, you know, for as long as I've been around markets and, and, and investing, and I suspect the same for you, we've always had this, I'll say this mental model of markets, whether it's our capital market, what we invest in, or our real world economy, we've always had this mental model that it is, you know, as Ray Dalio calls it, a machine, right? The economic machine. And our mental model has always been, well, it's complicated, but it's basically a clockwork. You know, that it, this dial turns, and so that impacts that over here. And we can understand, it's complicated, but if we study it hard enough, we can, we can actually understand the clockwork. We have this mental model. And I've, it, I've decided that this mental model is all wrong, right? That, that the market, it's not a clockwork. It's, it's not where, you know, turn this dial and so this happens. No, 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 no. The market is a bonfire. The market is a bonfire. And we would no more think that we can predict, you know, where this spark and that spark is going to be in a bonfire. It's, it's not a chaotic system, but it is not a, a system that can be controlled described by, you know, I'll use these $10 words, you know, a closed form, it's not a closed form system. And, and, and I think what you're describing, John, is exactly what all of us are feeling, right? That it's not, it, it's not something where we, we know where the, the, the levers are and the dials are to anticipate or predict some, 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 some outcome. Instead, it's this raging bonfire of, interrelated human and corporate decision makers. And it's, it, it's exciting, but and, it should and, be. And, and I'm going to finish up here because we've gotten along. But the simple fact is for, for listeners here, this, it, it, this isn't comfortable. I really don't like not having my dials, my understanding, mm -hmm. Uh, it, it requires an enormous amount more work and research and thought in this type of a world than it did uh, in a world where we could understand what happened and we could predict. And so um, I have a, I'm gonna let, I have Steve, I'm gonna let Steve close this because we're, we're running long on time and 
he's probably going to have to do some great deal of editing anyway. So, uh, thanks for that. I have uh, I have a thought as I'm listening to this, and and my mind is uh, is scrambling. On my desk uh, that I've kept this on my desk front and center for years is a quote from uh, the great Ned Davis, and it uh, it goes like this: Listen to the cold, bloodless verdict of the market. That's what price-based indicators accomplish. And the reason I bring that up is that as that bonfire is raging and moving in a different direction, I do think that there are things that we can do uh, to keep us balanced and uh, looking at price and, and, and having risk management uh, processes in place uh, certainly make a lot of sense. And that, that is oh, something I, I'm, I'm not saying that we're, 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 we are not subject to the storm. We there are things we can do. There are places we can do. We there's potential for to, to profit and benefit. Uh, so uh, this is, but it's not business as usual. Right. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm so, totally quite great. the optimist. Uh, hey Darren, thank you for joining us. Uh, John and Ben, I love the way that your minds work, uh, and uh, I've learned a great deal. Thanks for sharing. Uh, for listeners, EpsilonTheory.com, uh, Google that uh, or look it up on online, Ben Hunt. Uh, do sign up, follow him uh, on social media. Uh, he's outstanding. Really appreciate you, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us today. Anytime, Steve. Thank you.